0: Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tokajer of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshachainu, Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I pray that as we uh, dig into your word this morning that your voice will be heard, that it be your word spoken, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have specifically ordained for this purpose. Prepare our hearts to receive from you, to encounter you, and to hear your voice. In the name of Yeshua our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. Uh, this week we're in partial Toldot from uh, Genesis 25. Uh, 19 through 28, 9. If you have your scriptures, go and open up to Genesis 25, verse 19, the very beginning of the Parsha. Uh, As you're aware, at this point, we are moving through the patriarchs of Israel. Um, We are moving... Uh, now from Abraham to Isaac and on to Jacob uh, and Esau and the development of the nation of Israel as a whole. Uh, so this week's Parsha begins, verse 19. Now there are the, these are the genealogies of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took for himself Rebekah the daughter of Bethuel the Aramaean from Padanaram, the sister of Laban the Aramaean to be his wife. Isaac prayed to Adonai on behalf of his wife because she was pregnant or because she was barren. Adonai answered his plea and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. But the children struggled with one another inside of her and she said if it, if it's like this why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of Adonai. Adonai said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two uh, peoples from your body will be separated. One people will be stronger the, uh, than the other people, but the older will serve the younger. Uh, and then in verse 26, it tells us how old Jacob was when the, the boys were born. Jacob was 60 when they were born. So this means that Rebekah was barren for uh, approximately 20 years, all right? So when you're Isaac... And you're the child of Abraham and Sarah. You're the child of parents who waited for a very, very, very long time for the child, uh, for the son of promise, for the promises of God to become fruition. Uh, a child who experienced the Akedot Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, the Akeda itself, uh, and witnessed the way that God provided in the midst of that challenge, that, that testing. And you see everything that goes on pretty easy to see that Isaac is a, a likely a pretty solid man of faith uh, right out the gate. And we see here that uh, after 20 years of, uh, or near 20 years of their hearts being uh, constantly crying out to the Lord for children and her not having children yet, that Isaac approaches the Lord again and pours out his heart and prays for, uh, for his wife, for her barrenness to be removed, for her to be able to have children, and she becomes pregnant. She has twins. And so for 20 years, this child who came from a otherwise barren mother, for 20 years, this child and his wife struggled with some of the same problems. It's interesting how barrenness or, or at least fertility issues seems to be a theme within the narrative of the people of God, right? We have uh, 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 Sarah who goes for 90 years without a kid. Uh, even though the Lord promised she would have one, goes for 90 years without a kid, finally she has one. Rebecca goes 20 years without. Uh, dealing with, with fertility issues before she's able to have uh, Isaac and or, I'm sorry Jacob and Esau. We go to uh, Rachel and Rachel struggled to have children and, and was barren for some time. Uh, and it seems as though fertility is a very common theme in scripture. And I think ultimately that pans out to a narrative pointing us in the direction of Messiah and in particular God's ability to uh, to be sovereign even over the womb of a mother. And we come to Yeshua, who was born of a virgin, uh, and the fact that that could have only come about by the sovereignty of a divine God, by the sovereignty of the God of all creation, by the sovereignty of the God who specifically created the biological systems that allowed for pregnancy in the first place. And so we see the struggle of barrenness all the way up to uh, 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 Miriam, Mary, who not only never had an issue with barrenness or or with with fertility issues, but her child came before you know the you know don't put your horse before the cart or don't put your cart before the horse. Her child came before the process by which children come, um, and just kind of popped out of nowhere. So we see that there's this infinite reality of the sovereignty of God in this discussion. And and being a father of of children who came out of of, uh, fertility problems for, you know, for years that we battled with it, this reality speaks passionately into my heart because Danielle and I for several years were at the point where we're like, well, what's the point? Like, you know, we pray and we pray and we pray and nothing comes up. Why? Why do we even bother? Like, what's the point to any of this? Um, and, uh, and finally, Eliana comes along and Eliana was an absolute miracle child. You know, the doctors told Danielle um, that not only would she likely never get pregnant on her own, but she was even uh, less likely to ever get pregnant with medical help. And lo and behold, Eliana comes out completely natural, no medical help at all, and uh, 22 months later, here comes the surprise of Natanel, and I do mean surprise, we were kind of still sticker shock with Eliana, and here comes Natanel, so um, that was, you know, it was awesome, it was this powerful experience with the sovereignty of God and the divine ability uh, to be able to bring about the the desires of our heart, and in particular, when those desires are in line with his will. And so we see this struggle back and forth with fertility, and we see this imagery going on here, and it's pointing to Messiah. But more specifically, I want to look, for a little while, if you'll allow me, I want to look specifically at Esau and Jacob and one particular uh, encounter that they had. If you'll go to verse 27 of chapter 25. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau became a man of knowledge and hunting and an outdoorsman, while Jacob became, uh, was a mild man remaining in the tents. Uh, the rabbis would say here that actually Jacob stayed in the tents and studied the Torah and prayed and da-da-da. I'm not really sure how that works being, you know, he was before the Torah, but nonetheless, the, the, the theory is that's why he stayed in the tent. Um, I don't know how that works, but Apparently it could. I guess God spoke to him directly. I don't know. But uh, verse 28 says, Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I want to hone in on that for a second. Isaac, the son of promise. Isaac, who was the child born years and years and years after the promise was spoken, has now heard the promise God said that the older would serve the younger, yet he favors the older. Anybody find that curious? And a lot of times we look at this as though Isaac is like screwing up big time here. You know, he's like pushing God's promise and God's blessings aside and just focusing on the one that he likes the most. But anybody ever thought about that? Why is it that Isaac actually, if, if the promise was to go to Jacob and it was clear from God's word that the promise was to go to Jacob, why did he love Uh, Esau most? Why was he most uh, uh, favoring over Esau versus Jacob? And I think the answer comes down to he was a great man of faith, right? God calls uh, calls Abraham to take his son, his only son, up a mountain that he will show him on the journey and to tie him down, to slice his throat, and to burn him as a sacrifice, his one and only son, the son of promise, And Isaac, a grown man at the time, went along with it because he recognized God's promises do not come back void. And he recognized that God can follow through on his promises no matter whether or not we're involved with it. But it's always easier for us if we walk in line with his will. And so Isaac goes along with it. Even on the journey, he goes, hey, Pop, I see the fire, I see the wood, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham goes, well, God will provide himself a lamb. And they get up there and God provides a ram in place of Isaac and the substitutionary sacrifice there. And Isaac doesn't have to die, which is awesome. But Isaac knew, just like Abraham knew, no matter what, he was coming back off of that mountain, right? There was no doubt in his mind he was coming back off that mountain. Isaac knew that if God's promise of blessing and the promise of the seed of blessing to the world was to flow through Jacob... He knew it didn't matter what went down between him and Esau or him and Jacob. God's promise was going to become a reality. God's promise was going to be something that was going to come true, and nothing that we do can hinder what God is desiring to do. He may have to work around us and not use us, and we get pushed out the way, but what he wants is going to happen, whether we like it or not. And that's just the bottom line about it. And so he goes on here. We see uh, Isaac loved Esau because of the taste of her wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Rebekah also knew the promise, but Rebekah didn't come from the trusting and faith background. Rebekah didn't come from Abraham's household. Rebekah didn't experience all of that. And so Rebekah wasn't so much worried about the promises of God being a miraculously provided reality, but instead wanted to see that promise become a reality in whatever means were necessary on her own account. So verse 29 continues on, now Jacob cooked a stew. When Esau came in from the field, he was exhausted. So Esau said to Jacob, please feed me some of this really red stuff because I'm hungry, or I'm exhausted rather. That is, uh, that is why he is called Edom. So Jacob said, sell your birthright to me today. Esau said, look, I'm about to die. Of whatever use is this to me, a birthright? What difference would a birthright make to me if I die? And Jacob said, so make a pledge to me right now. So he made a pledge to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now, in ancient Semitic culture, birthright was everything, all right? We read at the end of this Parsha or towards the end of this Parsha about Jacob and, and Rebekah kind of connivingly sneaking in and stealing the blessing. Um, and it just goes to show us the difference in the faith of Isaac versus the faith of Rebekah because I, uh, Jacob already had the birthright, which meant that blessing was his in the first place. And I'm pretty sure by this point that Isaac had already heard about the birthright scenario. I'm almost certain that Jacob went running all proud and excited. I've got the birthright now. It's all mine. It's all mine. And Isaac would have been perfectly aware of it. But again, Isaac had no doubt that God's promises become reality. doesn't matter what we do. And so he knew God promised that the older would serve the younger. And in his mind, it didn't matter if he gave the blessing to Esau. Esau ultimately was going to be subjugated to, Isaac, uh, to Jacob, and Jacob was going to be who the promise would flow through and who the seed of promise would continue through. Isaac was part of that seed of promise, and he was aware of how God operated The birthright was everything, though, as I said, in Semitic, ancient Semitic culture and ancient Jewish culture. Uh, the word itself denotes the special privileges and advantages belonging to the firstborn son. Uh, He became the priest of his family. We see this Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. Reuben was supposed to be the the ruler and the priest uh, over Israel, yet the priesthood, because of Reuben's sins, transfers to Levi, to Levi, and the priesthood flows through Levi instead. Uh, And uh, and here we see the same thing, that birthright that would have put Esau, if he had gotten it, the, the blessing, that birthright would have put him as the priest of the household. But Esau despises his birthright. He didn't care about it in the first place. So what good have, would it have been for him to have been the priest of his family if he didn't care in the first place? Uh, the firstborn son had uh, through the birthright was allotted to him a, uh, a double portion of, his, of the paternal inheritance. So he was allotted a double portion by birthright, allotted a double portion of the inheritance. So whatever there was, there's two kids. That means it was divided into thirds and uh, the birthright would have gotten two thirds and the other would have gotten one third. The firstborn uh with the birthright inherited the judicial authority of his father, whatever it might be. Uh and so we see that the judicial, judicial authority, the head of the household mentality, goes through the birthright to the firstborn uh and uh and through his firstborn and so on. Uh uh with the birthright was also attached a sacred importance to uh to that rank of firstborn or first begotten, uh which is then also theologically seen in alignment with Yeshua. As the first of the reborn, as the first of that uh, that that being um, resurrected, the firstborn of the resurrection, and so so on. So there's this prophetic aspect to the firstborn, to the the birthright that goes to the firstborn as well. And so here, Jacob recognized the birthright had value. The birthright was important. The birthright was was everything, and he knew that the promises of God was to flow through him and his seed, not through Esau. So that meant that he wanted to do whatever it took. So when Esau comes running in and says, hey, uh, I want some of that stew. I'm about to die. I've been hunting all day. I'm, I'm starving. I'm exhausted. I'm hungry. I don't have time to fix anything myself. By the way, if Esau was such a great hunter, why is he starving? <laughs> Anybody ever sat and, and thought about that for a second? Like if his whole thing was game and hunting game and, and preparing, I mean, because Isaac didn't send him out to go get game and bring it to the cook. Isaac said, go kill something, cook it the way I like it, bring it back to me. If he was such a great hunter, why is he hungry? Yet here he comes back, and we see that the importance of the narrative had to do with that birthright and what went along with it. Now, with that birthright comes the blessing of the firstborn. So the the fact that Jacob and Rebekah end up connivingly stealing the blessing as well, it's just crazy. And it shows us the difference in faith between Isaac as a man of faith and Rebekah as a woman of faith in this particular scenario. Rebekah didn't have the same faith as Isaac did, that those promises were going to be fulfilled no matter what, and that that birthright right that was divinely given and orchestrated for Jacob was going to make it to him. So she decided to work it in her own way, by her own hands, to make it come about and in suit... Anytime we try to make the will of God happen by our own efforts, we end up producing strife. And he ends up with this long 21-year separation from his brother because of the strife that that incident caused and replicated for so many years. He had to run for his life because Esau was planning to murder him. Had they simply just allowed God to do what God said he was going to do, none of that would have happened. I'm also curious personally, had they allowed God to do it in his own way and by his own timing, would Esau have been a man of God? Would Esau willingly have been under the spiritual authority of Jacob and walked right with the Lord? Would the Edomites, would have, would the Edomites have been a problem for Israel down the road when they go into the land of Canaan? Would that complication continue to rise? If he had done, if they had simply done what they should have done in trusting in God's provision of his promises to fruition, would we have the Arab Israeli crisis today? Because when Rebecca tells Isaac, hey, I don't want my kid marrying these women around here, I'm done with them, send them back to our homeland and he can find a bride there and bring her back. Uh, she recognized, he recognized, uh, Esau recognized when he overheard this that marrying the women of the land would make his parents mad. So when Jacob was sent off and sent back to Haran, sent back to their family's uh, area, their family's city, Esau then went out to spite his parents and not just married a woman of the land, but he marries as another wife, the daughter of Ishmael, the daughter of Isaac's brother. Which, by the way, because of Sarah trying to produce God's promises by her own hands, there was strife there also between Isaac and Ishmael that should not have and did not need to be there. So I wonder, had Rebecca and ultimately Isaac as the authority uh, in, in, in uh, covering over his wife simply wholeheartedly allowed God to do what God was going to do? I'm curious if we'd had half the problems we have today. I'm curious what Esau's life would have looked like. I'm curious what Jacob and Esau's relationship would have looked like. Because even when Jacob comes back, Jacob doesn't actually come back. Even once they have restoration of relationship, Jacob says, look, I get too many people to walk with you. You go on ahead. We'll catch up with you. We'll meet you uh, at, at the house. And when Esau disappears, Jacob hooks her right and goes elsewhere. They never actually fully restore relationship. And that strife is still there. The problem in this week's Parsha is the lack of reverence for what the birthright in a spiritual family truly is. And I think that's a valuable and important lesson for us to understand. Because whether you recognize it or not, you and I, being born anew in the blood of the Lamb, being born anew in the power and presence of the Ruach HaKodesh, we're now part of a new inheritance. We're now part of a new family line. Both Jew and non-Jew alike are now part of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. We are now sons and daughters, children of the God Most High. We are heirs to His kingdom and the birthright is of the utmost importance as heirs to His kingdom. And what's interesting is although we are many, as believers, we are many, we are echad, we are one. Because we are one bride of Messiah. And we are in error, or we are errors to the, uh, the kingdom of God, and to the inheritance of the kingdom of God with Messiah. Go to Romans 9, verse 1. Romans 9 deals a lot with this very idea. Romans 9, 1, I tell the truth in Messiah. I do not lie my conscience assuring me in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, that my sorrow is great and the anguish in my heart unending. For I would pray that I myself were cursed, banished from Messiah for the sake of my own people, my own flesh and blood, who are Israelites. How many want to see their family come to salvation? How many have the chutzpah enough to say, I would be willing to give my own salvation up if my family would become to Messiah? Paul says, I would be willing to give up everything, my inter- eternal inheritance, if my Jewish brothers and sisters would come to faith. How many of us be- as believers recognize that we are now a part of the family of Israel and that our heart's desire for the Jewish people coming to salvation should be like Paul's? We should be crying out with every ounce of fervor that we have to see the Jewish people come to salvation. Because as Paul says in Romans 11, when they do, it'll be like life from the dead. You want to see revival. You want to see outpouring. You want to see a move of God like we could never imagine. Wait until Israel opens their eyes to the truth of Messiah Yeshua. To them belongs the adoption and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the Torah, and the temple service, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, the Messiah, who is overall God, blessed forever. Amen. Paul's saying the Jewish people are the inheritors naturally of the birthright of Messiah. The Jewish people naturally are the inheritance of the birthright of the promises of God. The Jewish people naturally are the inheritance of the blessings that go along with it, of the covenants that go along with that, of the relationship that goes along with that, and of the kingdom of God that goes along with that. The Jewish people naturally are heirs in the birthright to that. But much like Esau, Romans 9 goes on to talk about, much like Esau, Israel despised their birthright, the spiritual birthright. Because when Messiah did in fact come, we as a nation turned our back on him. And we as a nation for 2,000 years now have yet to open our eyes to the reality of the fact that the birthright we have so desperately desired for millennia is in the person of Yeshua Mashiach. And with that, verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, rather the children of the promise are counted as seed. For the word of promise is this, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but also Rebecca having twins from one act with our father Isaac, yet before the sons were even born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose and choice might stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. And it is written later on in uh, in this week's off it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, did God really hate Esau? Not at all. God hated the choices he knew Esau was going to make. God hated the fact that Esau never came back in fullness, but he didn't hate Esau himself. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no justice with God. May it never be. For to Moses he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who strives, but on God who shows mercy. Verse 24, even us he called, not only from the Jewish people, but also from Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who who was not loved, beloved. And And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people; there shall, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel: Though the number of Bnei the children of Israel, be as the sand of the sea, only the remnant shall be saved. For Adonai will carry out His word upon the earth, bringing it to an end and finishing quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless Zevaot had left us seed, we would have become like Sodom. And resembled Gemara. It's not about simply being physically a part of the bloodline. It's about the choice to walk in the promises of God, to believe in the promises of God, becoming a part of the birthright of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, becoming a part of the birthright of Israel, becoming a part of the birthright as inheritance, sons and daughters of the King Most High. It's not about bloodline, it's not about lineage, it's about choice. The problem is, is much like Israel, who chose to turn their back on Messiah in the first century, and much like Esau, who chose to turn his back on the birthright birthright that was rightfully his, all too often we as believers, you and I both, also turn our backs on the birthright that is ours. Because with birthright becomes responsibility. With birthright becomes a lifestyle of service, a lifestyle of obedience, a lifestyle of willingness, of honor, of reverence, of worship. And far too often, you and I are more like Esau than we are Jacob, we're more like Israel than we are the nations. Far too often we're willing to turn our back on the birthright that is rightfully ours because of the blood of the Lamb. Not because of anything you and I did. Just take away the blood of the Lamb and we're still the same miserable pile of garbage we were before we accepted Messiah. But it's because of the blood of the Lamb we've been made new. We've been reborn in the Spirit. We have seen a new birth. We've experienced the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And we have been made anew in him for his purposes, for his promises to become fulfilled and reality in our lives so that others may come to know Messiah because of us. But often people look at our lives and they don't see Messiah and they don't see someone that loves a birthright. They see someone that despises the birthright, that would give it up for a bowl of soup. They see somebody that all those should be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb looks just like them and their mire straits and the darkness and disparity and muck and mire that they live in. Far too often the world looks at us as believers and they don't see Jacob, a man of promise and faith. They don't see Isaac, a man of faith. They don't see Abraham, a man of faith. They don't see Peter or Paul. They don't see Stephen, great men of faith. Instead they see Esau. Someone who, although in a position to have been given everything, willingly lays it all down to serve the flesh. But where the presence of God resides, the flesh must be put down. So that we can walk faithfully in His will, in His ways, and in obedience. As Joel said earlier when he prayed after worship, God desires obedience over sacrifice. Walking in the birthright that is ours requires obedience. In Malachi 1, which is this week's Haftorah Parsha, it talks about how Israel forsaken, had forsaken the, the sacrifices, had forsaken the temple service, had brought lame sacrifices when the Lord requires only the best we brought miserable offerings. We brought hearts that were not turned faithfully to him. And, and how many of you have a traditional English translation where Malachi is at the end of the Old Testament? And immediately following Malachi comes a blank page before the starting of the New Testament with Matthew. The reason Malachi is at the end of the Christian ordering of the Old Testament rather than where it belongs in the Jewish ordering... Chronicles at the end of the the Tanakh or the Old Testament is because the Gentile world in the 3rd and 4th centuries and 5th centuries looked at passages like Romans 9 and went, see, God's done with the Jewish people. They were Esau. They despised their birthright. They wanted nothing to do with it. It's now ours. It's all ours. But there was a problem with that. There was a problem with replacement theology fitting in that mindset. And that was that Chronicles end with a blessing over Israel. And you can't have the Old Testament end with a blessing over the people God has now cursed and done away with. So they altered the Old Testament and put Malachi at the end because Malachi 1 and 2 talks about a curse over Israel because of Israel's forsaking the ways of God. Because of Israel not having a heart righteous and holy in their service before the Lord. But what people don't realize in doing that is they didn't actually read Malachi. Because Malachi is a really cool book. Malachi is a post-Babylonian prophecy. But more specifically, the end of Malachi is where the Lord says, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to pour out my spirit upon you. I'm going to bring you back. Lo and behold, it may have started out with curse, but it ends with blessing. Just like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on and so forth. The problem is, as you and I walk in the curse segment of life way too often, as opposed to walking in the renewal of the promise that God has given us, the renewal that has come in the salvation and blood atonement of Messiah, Yeshua. We don't have to be Esau anymore, people. We don't have to be people that are ashamed of what we are in Him. We don't have to be people that are afraid of walking in His promises. We don't have to be people that are afraid of the recognition of His presence in our lives. We don't have to be people that care more about the things of this world than we do about the things of heaven. How many of you cry out on a regular basis, your kingdom here on earth? How many of you cry out the words of the Tefillat ha'addon, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer that says, uh, uh, you know, um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, uh, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? How often do we cry those words out? But do you recognize and do you understand that it begins with us? His kingdom is here because we are heirs to that kingdom. His eternal kingdom has not descended yet, but His kingdom is already here. And it is our birthright. It is our inheritance. It is our blessing. Because we have chosen to leave the ways of this world and to be adopted anew. Both Jew and Gentile alike, we all Jewish branches were cut off to make room for the natural and unnatural branches that accepted Messiah to be grafted back in. We have all been grafted in and adopted into the kingdom of God. It's time that we start acting like it and we start walking in it. It's time that we recognize that the birthright is ours, that the blessing is ours, and that it's our duty to walk in it to live in it, to honor it, to uphold it, to trust in his promises, to trust that it will come about without our help. If we simply walk in his will at all times and recognize that when we walk obediently in his will, that obedience, as I said, becomes sacrifice. And in this sacrifice of obedience comes a life that's a blessing to others. And you got to understand that the birthright and blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was that through their seed, the entire world would be blessed. The birthright wasn't that they would get rich they did, but that wasn't what the birthright was. The seed of promise and the birthright that went with it was that they would be a blessing to the whole world. And you and I are grafted into that birthright and adopted into that family, which means our birthright and inheritance is to be a blessing to the world around us. And that requires us walking obediently sacrificial lives. That requires us walking a life, living a life, that honors the name of the one by whom we're saved. So that others see the work of God in our lives and come to find his salvation. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we ask your forgiveness, Lord, for our willingness to despise the birthright that you have grafted us into. Father, I pray that you... Empower us with your Ruach HaKodesh to return in full teshuvah and full repentance. And most importantly, Lord, that you use our lives to be a blessing to others. That others may come to know the truth of your salvation and glorify your holy name because of the work of redemption you have done and are continuing to work in our lives. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen. Amen.